All right, so we're back at Cracks in Postmodernity with Pater Edmund Waldstein. Um, so first, tell us a little bit about yourself, and then we can talk about integralism. Sure, I'm glad to be here on Cracks in Postmodernity, a topic which has always fascinated me. Uh, always. So I'm the son of an Austrian and an American. My father's Michael Waldstein, an Austrian theologian. My mother's Susan Waldstein, an American theologian. And I grew up partly in the States, partly in Austria. Uh, I studied philosophy in the States um, and then entered the Abbey of Heiligenkreuz, which is a Cistercian Abbey here in Austria, uh, and studied theology at our uh, seminary. My abbey has a, its own major seminary. Uh, and then did further theological studies at the University of Vienna, which is where I got my doctorate. Um, and now I am a parish priest. Uh, this is kind of a, an idiosyncrasy of Austrian Cistercian monasteries that has to do with our history and sort of uh, the effects of the 18th century enlightenment on the Austrian church that in most parts of the world, Cistercian monasteries don't have parishes uh, because the original idea of the Cistercian order is very contemplative. But in Austria, Cistercian monasteries do have, have parishes. So uh, at the moment, I'm a parish priest, and I also lecture in moral theology at our seminary. So, you know, we've been hearing this word integralism thrown, a lot, thrown around a lot in the last couple of years, and I keep seeing your name going along with it. So I thought, why not ask you yourself? Uh, so for people who don't know much about integralism from a Catholic perspective, how would you try to explain it? Yeah, sure. So um, one way of looking at it is uh, to see, to contrast it with sort of the, the usual way of thinking about human life uh, in modernity. Modernity um, is founded on attempts to kind of separate human life into different uh, spheres different areas. Um, and so there's a separation between church and state, which is very key in early modernity, um, but also separation between politics and culture, between uh, morality and economics, mm -hmm. um, all these separations. Um, and integralism is an attempt to try to, to go back to an understanding of human life that sees human life more as a whole. Uh, mm -hmm. Integer, of course, means whole, integer, um, so integralism. Uh, and uh, my attempt has been to do that in, in multiple ways, but one of, the, one of the key ones, because it's sort of one of the key foundations of the modern world, is the separation between church and state. So I've... Uh, tried to question that and to argue that it would be better to uh, to see church and state not as sort of separate spheres of human life, but uh, as, as sort of the same human community under different aspects, um, the church as being directly concerned, or at least the uh, I mean, one of the, the, the confusions that come in here is that church has, has many different meanings. In, in one way, church can mean the whole body of Christ, all the believers. But sometimes when people say church, what they really mean is not the church as a whole, but sort of church authorities. Mm -hmm. um, and church authorities are, are directly concerned not with temporal politics, but with... Uh, with eternal life, with the common good of the city of God. Mm -hmm. um, whereas state authorities who hopefully will also be members of the church that is Christian lay faithful, they are more immediately concerned as state authorities with the, the common good of this life, with the happiness uh, and peace of uh, earthly society. Um, and those two things should be related, I think. I think they're not two totally separate things, but obviously the way you live your earthly life 
should uh, look towards your heavenly life and it should be informed by heavenly charity. So I want to sort of uh, argue against the strict separation between church and state that we see in modernity. Yeah, and uh, what we see a lot of the times is integralism is presented as an alternative to liberalism. Um, and that, you know, that goes into what you're saying about modern thought and the state. But I'm curious for you, like, you know, at least in America, this is one of the breeding grounds of modern enlightenment liberal thought. So when did you first start to call into question this, not just this um, structure of government, but this way of perceiving reality that liberalism proposes? Well, uh, ever since my childhood, really. When, mm -hmm. when, I was, when I was very small, we lived in Boston, Massachusetts. Okay. My father was doing a doctorate at Harvard. Um, and we went to a lot of Revolutionary War reenactments and I was very, okay. very patriotic American as a four-year-old, five-year-old, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I learned to recite um, Longfellow's poem, Paul Revere's Ride. Oh, wow. Uh, which is all about the American Revolution and this you know, great upsurge of patriotism. Um, but my father as an Austrian, um, and he, my, father, my grandfather is, a, is an Austrian jurist who's very much interested in sort of the older traditions of juridical and political thought. And my father uh, is a New Testament scholar, but he was just, of course, somewhat influenced by his father as well and by that tradition. So he, he was uh, more critical and questioning of sort of modern political arrangements and of certain kinds of American patriotism that sort of, at least in his view, and I think he's right, tend to sort of make an idol of uh, the American form of government and have kind of an exaggerated view of, of its virtue and it being sort of the first time in human history that human rights were respected and things like this, which, no, I mean, I don't, I don't have any, uh, any beef with, with true patriotism, right? People should mm -hmm. love their country, that's good. But there is this kind of exaggerated patriotism that you find, um, especially in America, which has such a, a great sense of its own except, exceptional place in the world and so on. So I guess from my father, I got kind of a more critical attitude towards that. Um, and then as a teenager, we were living in Austria then at the time. Uh, I was homeschooled, but I sat in on some classes, um, some college courses uh, at the Austria program of Franciscan University of Steubenville. Okay. And there was a, an American historian there um, who was very much a sort of what we would call a rad trad online. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so he taught a course on the French Revolution that was very sort of eye-opening to me. Uh, and especially sort of the references he made to older political thought and how they understood mm -hmm. uh, justice and the common good and so on. Interesting. Um, yeah. So then I would ask, like, I feel like, because um, in the West, in most Western countries, like liberalism has such a stronghold, um, not just again on the government, but the way that we perceive ourselves, the way we perceive cultural, social interactions. For someone who does think integralism is a more coherent worldview, like how do you even begin to put that into practice considering you know, the circumstances of the societies we live in? Yeah, well, um... I think it is a long game, uh, as it were, but I do think that a lot of people suffer from liberalism. They, they feel that there's something not quite right. Um, and I, I love the, the title of your podcast, as I mentioned originally, Cracks in Postmodernity, because I think postmodernity itself is kind of a cultural phenomenon, is a sign of kind of an unease in liberalism, although uh, it doesn't usually have much postmodernity and sort of postmodernist that usually doesn't have much to offer in the way of an alternative. It's often very trenchant as a criticism of yeah. the liberal order um, and sort of showing how the human soul is not at ease in this sort of order where everything is divided up into these separate spheres. Um, I wrote my dissertation at the University of Vienna on a novelist, David Foster Wallace. Okay, yeah. novelist um, who I think is, is uh, is very good at kind of showing that. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, much of what he shows us is, is, of course, 
true of human beings at any time and in any place. There's always something, there's always a kind of discontent to the human heart that uh, yeah. human beings are fallen. And so they're always going to be uh, sort of miserable and discontent. Uh, but nevertheless, I think David Foster Wallace's novels, they do also show particular features of our culture. He is interested in particular features of our, our culture that sort of aggravate human misery and, and lostness and sadness, as he puts it, loneliness. My dissertation was particularly on loneliness in David Foster Wallace, um, mm. which is partly, I think, just the, the human condition. We've through original sin, we're estranged from God, so we're kind of fundamentally lonely. But I think that liberalism aggravates that uh, through the kind of fragmentation of society that it's built on. Yeah, and I mean, this is kind of my take, or at least where I'm at right now, when I hear these integralist arguments, like, you know, as you said, it's a, a long game, like right now, it doesn't seem like a very viable option. But even if, even if it never becomes a viable option, I think what's valuable is that it provides some kind of consolation for people who feel so wounded, um, alienated because of the culture that liberalism has spawned. Um, and I think what's especially helpful is that integralism, because it's an integral worldview, like it takes into account the reality of original sin and that when power goes unchecked, or at least when it's not subjected to the will of God, like it corrupts, it creates violence and damage. And liberalism does not account for that. Like it doesn't, um, like if, if you're suffering from that loneliness, as you're saying, that sense of being alienated, feeling atomized, right. you're the one who's crazy. It's not that there's something wrong with this structure. Um, so when I hear these kinds of arguments, it's like, no, like there's something wrong with the structure. It's not me. It's not us humans who are, uh, who are crazy. It's, you know, it's the circumstances that we're in. And I think, again, it's like when you read someone like David Foster Wallace, it's consoling because it helps you to see, it helps you to put a name to what you're experiencing, you know, like it, to be able to articulate it at least already is, is a step. It's already something, you know. Yes, I agree. And I mean, liberalism has kind of a founding myth, as it were, or it has multiple founding myths. But one of the, the sort of founding myths of liberalism is that violence in human society is caused by religion mm -hmm. and religion is gets gets a, a whole new meaning in in this early modernity especially uh, i think hobbes is especially important here in sort of giving religion a new meaning um and uh the the liberal myth comes to say that what what really causes violence and war in human society is uh, is religion and mixing religion up with politics. This is, uh, and so liberalism had to come and save man from violence by separating religion from the state. Um, but I think that's mostly false. I mean, there, yeah, clearly there, there has been violence at all times in society and there were, um, violent conflicts at various times that were caused by religious differences and so on. Uh, I don't deny that. Although I think the, the early modern wars of religion, um, I don't think that religion was really so much the cause of the way they went, but, uh, but still I think liberalism is not the solution. And in fact, it always causes more violence and different kinds of violence. It sort of moves violence around maybe in some ways. Um, but if you look at the history of, of liberal societies, they're extremely violent as well. Yeah, and it, it covers over the violence, or at least it provides these justifications so that it can continue perpetuating this, this claim of neutrality, this claim of, you know, that it's peaceful. But it, it makes me think of uh, William Cavanaugh's work on the myth of religious violence. Um, but then also recently I picked up Lord of the World by Robert Hugh Benson. And like it shows you the ultimate trajectory of this logic that like you can annihilate whole populations, but it's all in the name of peace. It's all in the na name of maintaining this order, or at least back in the old days when you had violence in the name of religion, at least you're calling it what it is. You're saying that it's, you know, it's violent. It's not ideal. Um, so then that's part of the thing though, that like 
that's so disconcerting about liberalism, the, the deceptiveness that it claims to be neutral and really it is making a proposal about life's meaning. Um, it's taking, making this claim to power, but with not really identifying itself for what it is. Um, but then the other thing I would ask those, like you often hear integralism associated with this attempt to like go back into the past and restore some kind of Catholic monarchy which a lot of people are critical of um, because again, we're in 2022. Is it possible to go back to a monarchical kind of structure? A lot of people doubt that. What do you say to those kinds of objections? Sure. Well, um, on the one hand, I do have, I do have some sympathy for that uh, <laughs> kind of more restorationist strain in integralism, which um, it is in a way what's the the sort of this sort of slightly romantic restorationist tradition has been what's kept alive a lot of these ideas. And so mm -hmm. I also have a kind of gratitude towards it. And when I was when I was a teenager, I was an ardent monarchist. Um, this was one of the things that I was set on restoring. But I mean, later on, as I thought about these things more carefully, more deeply, I've come to see that um, what Pope Leo XIII emphasizes again and again is really true, namely that the form of government is, is secondary mm -hmm. uh, and different forms of government can be just um, and different forms of government are maybe more suited to different places and different times. Um, yeah. And so maybe the, the form of government that was suitable in Austria in the 12th century is not necessarily going to be suitable to North America in the 21st century. Yeah. Um, so I think basically, uh, I, I don't think it's it's really necessary to try to pursue a restorationist program in that sense. You you want a, a form of government that's good, that's able to, uh, and as Pope Leo XIII says, what makes government justice that it's ordered to the common good. Um, and that's the important point. Um, but it's ordered to the common good. And as uh, he says in other passages, part of uh, justice for a government is recognizing the church as a perfect society that is not as uh, a kind of voluntary association that would depend on state law for its legitimacy mm -hmm. um, as an association, but as a society that is uh, a necessary society founded by God that doesn't derive its authority from the state and whose authority is in fact um, superior to the authority of the state. Mm -hmm. So then I'm curious to know, because I've seen you've written a little bit about this, what's your attitude towards like the overlaps with other post-liberal positions which aren't particularly integralist. So like, I don't know, some of the, the more left-wing approaches that are critical of liberalism or the more right-wing populist nationalist kind of approaches. Like, cause I see that, you know, mm -hmm. I see your criticisms, but also that you have a little bit of a charitable kind of, uh, like you try to affirm what is true within those critiques of liberalism. So I, I wanna hear a little bit more about that. Yeah, yeah, I, that that's my um, ambition is to try yeah. to, see what's true in all the positions. Uh, this is, I, I went to Thomas Aquinas College for my mm -hmm. philosophical degree in California, which is very much sort of 100% Aristotelian Thomist uh, framework. <laughs> and Aristotle, um, in his book, The Topics, which is uh, maybe one of the less read of his, of his organ on the, the, the works on logic, because it's not on scientific logic, but on sort of pre-scientific logic, dialectics coming to uh, coming to the premises that you need for demonstrative science. But it's a very interesting book. And what Aristotle says, one of the things that Aristotle says there that I think is very important is that um, there usually is something true about what people are saying, even if you disagree with them uh, on some level, it's useful to think about why, why they're saying what they're saying and, and sort of figure out what's true in it. And Aristotle himself exemplifies this in most of his works 
he looks at what previous philosophers have said about any question he's studying, and he's not going to agree with their whole teaching about it, but he's going to sort of figure out why they thought what they thought, and there's going to be some, some truth to that. There's going to be some question that they were right to raise, uh, and sort of a sign that his own position is reliable is that it can sort of answer the questions that they raised and sort of show what's true about what they said and also where they went wrong. So <laughs> anyways, this is sort of long forward to uh, answering your question um, about overlap with other sort of post-liberal uh, movements. Yeah, I think there's a lot of truth in, in post-liberalism both on the right and on the left. Um, so beginning with the left, uh, you mentioned uh, Kavanaugh, and I think that there's a lot uh, there's a lot of truth to his critique of liberalism. A lot of what he says is is right. Um, the way liberalism constructs religion, the way he that he shows that, I think very very well. Um, and um, one where I would part ways with him is that I think he. He has a very trenchant critique of sort of of bad forms of power that I agree with, but then I think he he tends to have a too that leads him to a too pessimistic view of power, as though that no exercise of power could be good, um, and that's where I don't agree with him. There's a sort of anarchist strain mm -hmm. in him, um, which you see also to a certain extent in Dorothy Day. Yeah, that's I admire Dorothy Day very much. Yeah. But she definitely has this anarchist strain yes um, and also pacifist strain which mm -hmm. i don't entirely agree with my american grandfather was uh for a time the publisher of commonweal magazine oh wow okay um and he yeah he actually did a hostile takeover of commonweal in the 1930s with some other young guys they were guys what today we would call left cats at the time but my grandfather became more conservative in his old age as a young fiery young man he was sort of a left cat and uh he did a hostile takeover of commonweal but anyways he 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 interviewed dorothy day at one point and i remember him uh reminiscing about it and how how much he admired her i think she was really a great woman but uh yeah i don't agree with the sort of anarchist aspect of it so that's sort of the left um yeah. the left side the right-wing post-liberalism i think also has a lot of uh Two things to say again, mostly in the in the critical aspect, the the critique of liberalism uh, and the kind of deracinated nature of globalization and so on. Um, and I think there is something true about uh, some of their positive proposal as well. I think there's they have this appreciation for local culture and so on, which you know comes from the the conservative tradition. Um, it's not just the blood and soil uh, yeah. <laughs> thing, but there is something true about, you know, piety towards the communities that have enabled your life and so on, and that have given you the traditions that sustain you. I think there's something true about that. But of course, there's the danger, the danger being that um, that, that leads you to a kind of of national chauvinism where you it's us against them and you sort of okay. exclude minorities and foreigners and um and you know the bible has a lot to say about excluding the poor and the stranger and so on so that, that's where i would criticize them yeah no and I, I what concerns me though is that they're pitted against each other as if they're totally opposing camps when really i think both post-liberals of the left and right are asking very important questions about what liberalism leaves out. And I think ultimately there's this question about the dignity of the worker, the dignity of the everyday person as opposed to you know, technocratic elites. And if we could have a little bit more charity, maybe there could be a little bit more collaboration between people on different poles. But I, you also mentioned the whole issue about, again, like the local versus the universal. And I think, you know, this appears a lot in your writings, like this brand of Catholic nationalism versus universalism. And I think, yeah, like when you look at the church's social doctrines, when you look at Pope Leo XIII, you see this emphasis on, you know, subsidiarity, starting with 
the local distributism. Um, and I think, yeah, like, I don't know, there's the risk of falling into that hyper-localist mentality that ignores the importance of this kind of universal trajectory of what the church is. But then you see the power of like these conglomerates like the UN, like the EU and how, again, like it obscures the value of the everyday person. So I don't know, like when you look at the church's social doctrine, how do you make sense of this, uh, this paradox between the universal and the particular? Yeah, yeah, no, it's a very good, it's a very, I think it's really a key question. Um, and one way in which the church has spoken about this, at least since the time of Pius XI, is with the principle of subsidiarity. Mm-hmm. Um, and what subsidiarity really means is that different levels of society are, are not just different in scale, but they're different in kind. So um, the kind of goods that a family can achieve um, are not just sort of the same goods that uh, a city can achieve, but on a smaller scale, mm-hmm. but they're actually, to some extent, although they're, I think they're sort of analogously related, but there's some, to some extent, different kinds of good. Yeah. And both are necessary. And the goods that a family achieves are presupposed, yet yeah, they're, uh, for, this, for a city to achieve its goods, it needs to have strong families which achieve their goods. And this is the same, however many levels you go up to, all the way up to a global, um, political order, which the folks have been calling for, mm-hmm. um, which makes a lot of conservatives uneasy. But yep. uh, because the, the danger, of course, is that the higher level sort of usurps um, the responsibilities of the lower level and therefore thereby makes it more difficult for the lower level to, to achieve its own proper goods. Um, and I think that you know modern history has a lot of examples of this. Um, so that's, that's what you want to do. You want to try to see how you want to sort of get a clear, a clear understanding, but not just a clear understanding, but a, a, strong, um, a strong cultural tradition of achieving the goods of lower level societies. Um, and you want the, the higher level societies, the state, if you will, the nation and the globe, to um, to understand those traditions and those goods and promote them and not try to usurp them. You want to give them enough power to achieve the goods that can only be achieved at a higher level, but you want them to um, actively promote the goods of lower level societies. Um, so, I mean, that being said, I'm curious to know your take on some of some things I've been hearing about just the crisis with Ukraine and Russia, because I, I hear some people saying as much as what Putin's doing is not justifiable, that there's something to be said about his resistance to, you know, the the power of NATO, of the UN, uh, of the EU. Um, and I guess the encroaching Western cultural sensibility in Russia. Um, I don't know. What are your what's your take on? those kinds of ideas controversial yeah. but <laughs> yeah it's very controversial least. topic i mean um my position is kind of terribly vanilla and normie on this because yeah. <laughs> i mean partly because i have a lot of i have a lot of personal connections to ukraine i've mm-hmm. spent a lot of time in ukraine and have a lot of ukrainian friends um and so it's it's much easier for me to see this from the Ukrainian perspective mm-hmm. than from the Russian perspective. Um, and so U- Ukrainian history is is so marked by uh, the the bad things that Russia has done in Ukraine. I mean, if you just look at it from uh, basically from the 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 end of the Polish Lithuanian Commonwealth when the um, various Ukrainian uh, powers sort of oriented themselves more towards Moscow as a way of uh, 
as a way of combating the other, the Turks to the south and the Poles okay. and Austrians to the west. Ever since then, it's been a history of Russia doing bad stuff to Ukrainians, basically. Yeah. <laughs> Under the Tsarist regime, you have this massive push for Russification. You have, right from the beginning, persecution of the Greek Catholic Church in Ukraine, attempt to, to uh, suppress it and make all the Greek Catholics become Russian Orthodox. You have attempts to basically um, ban the Ukrainian language, make everyone speak Russian. Um, and then, and this just continues after the the revolution in Russia. You get basically the same thing in the Soviet Union. Again, massive uh, persecution of the Greek Catholic Church. The Russian Orthodox Church was persecuted in every part of the Soviet Union except in Ukraine. And in Ukraine, it wasn't persecuted because they were so intent on persecuting the Greek Catholics that they sort of built wow. up the Russian Orthodox as a counterweight. Um, so. By far the most, the largest number of Russian Orthodox seminarians in the Soviet Union were in Ukraine. And they were all originally Greek Catholic guys who had been sort of forcibly converted to Russian Orthodoxy. So that's very much marked my perspective. Um, and so I can understand why the Ukrainians want closer ties to the West and why they're interested in joining NATO as kind of protection against Russian domination, which has always been sort of their historical fear. Uh -huh. But on the other hand, it is true that, that of course, um, the West is, is deeply sick. Uh, it's deeply infected by um, liberalism and all its bitter fruits. Uh, and that, um, that Russians are worried about that and that they're worried about having a, a military alliance, which was originally founded to fight Russia, you know, having being on their borders, especially um, as not just their borders, but especially the Ukrainian border, because Ukraine, they've always seen it as being sort of having this uh, common history with them as, you know, the the birth of Russia is really in, in the Kiev and Rus, the all the greatest Russian saints were really Ukrainian saints. And so, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But what do you make of Patriarch Kirill's position? Because theologically, I don't see how he, how it's coherent in any way. I mean, you have Christians, a Christian nation, so-called Christian nation killing fellow Christians. Like what's, what's behind that? Do you have any idea? Well, I mean, this is kind of the tragedy of the, the Russian Orthodox Church that right from the beginning, um, it's been so dependent on the power of the Russian rulers. Um, and this is, I mean, in a way a warning um, for, for integralism as well. I'm, I'm for more uh, integration between politics and religion and church and state to use the modern terminology or between the the temporal and the spiritual power to use the older terminology mm -hmm. but um it's very important when you're doing that um to uh to uphold the the universality uh, and superiority of the spiritual power. Mm -hmm. So much of the, the history of the, the Western, of Western Christendom is the history of tensions, not to say conflicts, between the two powers, the spiritual power and the temporal power. Mm -hmm. um, and one of my great heroes is, uh, is Pope Gregory VII, um, who in the investiture controversy sort of gives some of the clearest church teaching on the liberty of the church, um, meaning it's that it should not be under the, it shouldn't become an, an instrument of political power. And the problem with orthodoxy is that um, because it doesn't have the, the universality that the papacy gives to the, well, at least, sometimes gives yeah. to <laughs> sometimes gives to the western church in theory gives to the western church um you have 
a very strong dependence of the uh, the orthodox hierarchy on local and national political leaders. I mean, you had this even um, in the Byzantine Empire. The Byzantine Emperor was uh, often used the Orthodox Church as an instrument of his power and so on. Um, although you have, I mean, you do have some interesting counterexamples, right? In the the whole um, sort of the the experience that sort of is most uh, determinative of, of Orthodox Church culture is the iconoclasm uh, controversies. Yeah. And there you had iconoclast emperors who were to some extent resisted by the, the Orthodox Church. Um, and it's and that they eventually converted the emperors back to Orthodoxy is sort of the great triumph of, of Orthodoxy. And the mm -hmm. Feast of the Icons is sort of the best expression of Orthodox yes. identity. But um, anyway, in Russia, it's very clear that you've had since the beginning this very strong dependence of the, the hierarchy on the rulers. So the patriarch of Moscow, he became a patriarch basically because the, the, um, the Tsar of Muscovy basically kidnapped the patriarch of Constantinople and forced him to, to declare the, the Bishop of Moscow a patriarch. Uh, and wouldn't release him until he did it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and that's the way it's gone ever since. And even under communism, which was officially atheist and anti-Orthodox, um, still the, the communists were often able to use the Orthodox hierarchy as their instrument in various ways. And this is Petrarch Kirill as well. He, was, he grew up and was trained in that, uh, in that atmosphere. He, had, he was, uh, of course, um, the 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 Soviet regime through the the secret police would have given him instructions and so on. So that definitely forms the uh, the weakness of the Orthodox Church in in Moscow. But I mean, again, there's always something true about what people are saying, and yeah. and what Kirill says about the corruption of Western culture is certainly true, and that. Uh, Russia should try to to take a different route and try to live according to the apostolic tradition. That's true. That's what they should do, but not the way they're doing yeah. it now. So then what do you say to the people who look at situations like this and say, oh, well, you know, look at the Second Vatican Council, look at Dignitatis Humanum, that the, you know, this is a, the church endorsing separation of church and state, religious freedom. Yeah. And realists have a different take on that. So yes. what would you say? Yes. So this is, of course, a, a very um, important point, because many people do take Vatican II as kind of reversing church teaching on this and basically accepting um, liberal principles of the relation of church and state and on many other things. Um, freedom of speech, for example. I was just looking at this uh, recently. Um, for an interview that I did on, on freedom of speech because Gaudium et Spes, the council's um, constitution on the church in the modern world, it says people have the right to speak their own opinion. But you go back to um, Gregory the 16th, for example, and he says, you know, this is absolutely insane, never enough condemned opinion that people have the right to say whatever they want in, in, in print, you know. So there's this appearance of a great discontinuity between um, Catholic social teaching in the sort of what we call the Pian age that is from the French Revolution basically up into Vatican II, where the, the engagement with the, Vatican, with the modern world is basically, I mean, this is massively oversimplifying yeah. because there's, there's a lot of back and forth between the different pontificates there even, and even within the individual pontificates, the popes um, make various adjustments to their policy and so on. But to massively simplified, you have from the French Revolution up to Vatican II, you have this um, massive anti-revolutionary, anti-modern push from the popes who are saying, look, the revolutions brought all these evils, these terrible ideas, not in accord with scripture and tradition or with natural reason we reject them. Um, basically, we want to go back to the status quo ante. 
Um, and then with Vatican II, you get this very ironic approach to the modern world where it's the, the council recognizes the legitimate aspirations of the people of our time and so on and so forth. So there's this appearance of, of discontinuity. And of course, Archbishop Lefebvre is famous for, uh, for therefore saying, you know, the, they have unthroned him, that is the, the council fathers have unthroned or uncrowned, they have uncrowned him, have uncrowned Christ the King. They've, you know, the council's against the social kingship of Christ and therefore we need to revise the council and, you know, stick to tradition, which ultimately leads to him uh, ordaining bishops without the papal mandate and getting excommunicated. Um, and then, of course, on the other hand, you have these progressive theologians who say, you know, that's all preconciliar, um, you know, and we would not no longer relevant with the council, basically, of a new church. Um, but yeah, our approach as integralists is to say, no, we, we need to look more deeply at what exactly is meant, um, both by the pre-conciliar popes in their response to the French Revolution and to the liberal revolutions of the 19th century. Um, and, and what is meant by the Council Fathers mm -hmm. and see um, that although there might be some superficial discontinuities, there's a deep continuity between the two. And a continuity that goes, goes back to way before the French Revolution, if you look at the the teachings of the, the medieval popes, for example, I mentioned Gregory VII, um, but going all the way back to, uh, to sacred scripture, to the revelation of God in Christ, you have certain um, deep principles which remain the same. And one of those principles is the, the primacy of the spiritual mm -hmm. um, and the reality of the church as uh, as a true society, a societas perfecta, as they put it in the in the neoscholastic language, a complete society, which goes back to to Aristotle's an expression in Aristotle's politics, koinonia teleon, um, a perfect community, um, which is not uh, formed at will, but is formed necessarily. The way Aristotle thinks the the human city is something that flows from human nature. It's not something that is an artifact, the way you know Hobbes and Locke would think of human society as an artifact. Yeah. Analogously, the church, not by nature, but by supernature, is a necessary society, which has uh, which is superior to any temporal society. And that has to be recognized in justice. And so what, what Dignitatis Humane does is look at, um, and, and this is, here I'm depending on the work of Thomas Pink, the English yep. um, philosopher whose work on Dignitatis Humana I think is absolutely brilliant. Um, and I think what he says is quite true, that what Dignitatis Humana does is it, it looks at um, what is the temporal, political community able to do on its own authority in matters of religion. And um, on its own authority, it's not allowed to, uh, to forbid or to command religious acts unless they um, are destructive of, of um, public order, right? So if, if you had some sect that was practicing human sacrifice or something, then obviously the state could say, no, yeah. this is you know, destroying public peace and so on. Um, you can't do that. But apart from that, uh, the, the state doesn't have the right to intervene. And this is a consequence of the fact that God established his church and gave her authority over spiritual matters. Um, and her authority extends, however, only to those people who are, have become united to her through baptism. Uh, through baptism, you, you become united to the church and therefore um, the church has authority over you. It doesn't extend to those who are not baptized. Uh, and this is, this was, although it wasn't always in every case respected in practice in the history of the Christianization of, of Europe, for example, it was always taught that 
uh, it's sinful to force people to accept baptism. Um, this has to be a free act. Nevertheless, once they are baptized, the church does um, have the right to, to uh, exercise her authority over them up to and including even disciplining them when they violate their baptismal vows. Oh, sounds like the Mortara case. <laughs> well, I mean, this is this. The thing is, um, the Mortara case is a very tragic example. I mean, this is, in a way, this is the the weak, the, the weak flank of integralism. So we're always attacked on this because I, I do defend certain actions of the church, which other people think are indefensible and which the church should repent for. Um, not necessarily because I think they're the the most prudent exercise of the church's authority uh, in that moment, given those circumstances, but because I think that, um, I mean, the, the, the strange thing about the Mortara case is that it's a case where you have a person who is baptized as a child, not by his own parents, but yeah. by a servant girl who was afraid that he would die without being baptized. And so she baptized him uh, on her own authority as it were so you have a person who's united to the church through baptism but without the consent of you have a baby or a child who's united to the church through baptism without the consent of his parents which is not the normal case and it's and in fact there were laws at the time aimed at preventing such cases from mm -hmm. arising but you know sometimes stuff yeah, happens i mean if anything it makes for a great story yeah, it makes for a great story. Yeah, but I mean, did you hear fun. they're making a? I think Spielberg is trying to make a movie about it. Yes, I don't know yeah. if he's still gonna go through with it, but I think it'll be entertaining, no matter what your <laughs> is on it. Yeah, and and Mortara himself, Edgar Mortara, this Jewish boy who was baptized by the servant girl, he he ended up being grateful for that having happened yeah. to him. He um, became a priest. Yeah. Right. So it all works out in the end. But, it all uh, works out in the end, but it's kind of terrible PR for integralism, is, I'm afraid to say. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wow. So before we wrap up, one last thing I'll ask you. What do you think is the most valuable insight from the current Pope, from Francis? What do you think his greatest contribution is to the church today? Well, um, my favorite thing that he's uh, done for the church is the encyclical Laudato Si. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I think a lot of his actions speak louder than words and, and you know, his love of, uh, of the poor and so on is also one of the great important things. But in, in, in terms of teaching, which mm -hmm. is only one of the, one of the uh, missions of the Pope, one of the offices of Peter is to teach. In terms of his teaching, I think the most important thing is Laudato Si, which I think really puts its finger on uh, an exposed nerve in our civilization, which is the disordered relation to nature that we have in modern capitalist society, which is rooted in a false understanding of nature um, and a kind of uh, a view of nature as kind of raw material to be dominated by um, the human subject as kind of this uh, superhero that's sort of enthroned above the natural world without being part of it and just uses it for its own purposes without um, respect for the, the teleology which God has written into his creation. And I think the encyclical Laudato Si is very good at showing that. Yeah, I mean, I don't think people realize how loaded it is because some people just boil it down to like, oh, you know, it's the Pope telling us we have to recycle more and, you know, but it's philosophically, theologically speaking, it's like, it's a lot to break down in there. Yeah, so. I think there you see when, um, I mean, Pope Francis is not really a scholar. He's, he's no. uh, his life has been, you know, marked by... Uh, other kinds of duties as a superior in a religious community and so on, he didn't have time to be a scholar. But he did begin sort of um, research for scholarly work. Um, he, he wanted to do a doctorate 
And the author, as you know, whom he was looking at was Romano Guardini. Yep. And I think you see a lot of influence of Romano Guardini. Oh, yeah. see. Um, and I think Guardini has really important insights on that stuff. Yeah, no, there's, there's a lot there. But um, so is there anything you'd like to plug before we move on? Um, well, in I'm soon it, it isn't out yet, but there will soon be on in the magazine First Things uh, a exchange between me and uh, Ross Douthat. Oh wow, that's uh, exciting! New York Times columnist. Um, so it's Douthat. It, it's a um, an article by Douthat on sort of Christian post-liberalism and on Jacques Maritain as kind of a, a model of Christian post-liberal thought. And then there's, and, and he makes a few, a few sort of gentle jabs at integralism in that article. And then there's a response by me and then a response to my response by Douthat. So I think that will be in the July issue of First Things, yeah. Awesome. And then people can follow you on Twitter. Absolutely. They can What's follow me handle? on Twitter. Uh, San Crucensis. San Crucensis, to use the Italian pronunciation. We, in, in German, we have our own pronunciation of Latin. Okay. St. Pius X tried to impose Italian pronunciation on the whole church, <laughs> but in Germany, he failed us. <laughs> Popes <laughs> often fail to impose their will on Germany. Uh, and then Austria is kind of an appendage of Germany. So um, in German pronunciation, it would be San Crucensis, but in Italian pronunciation, San Crucensis, which is the adjectival form of the name of my monastery. Okay. And that's also your one of your blogs, correct? Yes, okay. yes that's one of my blogs. Awesome. The All right. One well, being the Josias. The Josias, yeah. That's what I was going to say. Well, so people can follow you there. But uh, otherwise, Pater Edwin, thanks for joining us. Yeah, it was good fun. Thanks for having me on. Thank you.